Uh, this morning I want us to turn to the Gospel of Matthew. I don't have PowerPoint slides because I made a mistake and did it in Google Slides instead of in uh, PowerPoint, and so we couldn't get that going today, but uh, you can follow along easily. Uh, Matthew chapter 3 is where I'm going to read. I'm going to actually read the entire chapter, verses 1 through 17, so follow along in whatever translation you have. In those days... John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Lord, add a blessing to the reading of your word and open it to us today, Lord. Deepen our understanding, challenge us. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. January the 20th, 2021, will be the day in which the 58th presidential inauguration takes place in our nation. Now, the inauguration, as we know, is a big deal in our nation. It's a significant event. It's marked by a great deal of pomp and circumstance, hundreds of thousands of people, sometimes even over a million, the estimates have been, will attend the inauguration in D.C. Tens of millions of people will watch it on television or online. Besides the swearing-in of the president and the presidential inaugural address, there are inaugural parades, there are inaugural balls in the evening, and other events that lead up to it. It's a big deal. 
The definition of inauguration is the beginning or introduction of a system, policy, or period, or the formal admission of someone to office, or a ceremony to mark the beginning of something, or all three of those things. So this morning, we looked at a passage of Scripture in Matthew chapter 3 that covered the most important inauguration that ever took place. It's spoken of in all four of the Gospels. I'm speaking, of course, about the inauguration of Jesus into his ministry as the Messiah. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, they all record it. The first three Gospels in detail, John less so, but it's there. Mark puts it at the very beginning of his Gospel in chapter 1. Matthew puts it following the account of the Nativity, as does Luke. Luke includes between those two things the only biblical record of Jesus as a child at the temple in Jerusalem. But all of the Gospels record it. So it seems that Jesus lived in relative obscurity for some 30 years until he comes on the scene. And come on the scene, he does. But not until some preparation, some advance work. Whoever is sworn in as the president two years from now, you can be sure that there will be a great deal of work that precedes that inauguration day. Hundreds of people, men and women, guys in Brooks Brothers suits and women and office attire from Neiman Marcus will be preparing for the president's big day. People who have been trained and are skilled at planning events like that will use those gifts and those talents and those skills to make way for the president's big day. Now contrast what we have seen and what we'll see two years from now on Inauguration Day. Contrast that with God's plan for the inauguration of the ministry of Jesus. Where there are hundreds or thousands of angels that came down from heaven heralding the beginning of this ministry and the setting in of Jesus to the office of Messiah in great shining robes? No. Nope. Just one guy. Just one. God's advanced man for announcing the beginning of Jesus' ministry was John the Baptist. No Brooks Brothers suits here. A camel hair garment. A camel hair garment and a leather belt. I don't think we'll see anyone dressed like that at the inauguration. The menu for Jesus' inauguration luncheon? Locusts and wild honey. Yum. There wasn't a high-profile press conference at the Jerusalem Hilton where someone spoke about what was about to take place and putting a spin on the first days in office for Jesus. Nope, it was just one guy called by God out in the wilderness crying, repent and be baptized, prepare the way for the Lord, make his path straight, get ready, people. Just John the Baptist. The Gospel writer Luke gives an account of John's birth, and at the end of that account, he says, And the child grew and became strong in spirit, 
and he lived in the wilderness until he appeared publicly to Israel. John appears on the scene just prior to Jesus' inauguration into ministry. It may have been just a few weeks, very close in time period. John had the forerunner ministry. He prepared the way for Jesus. There were two main elements, as we saw in that passage, of what John's ministry was. A call to repentance and be baptized for forgiveness of sins, and the proclamation that the kingdom was at hand. John said that the one that was coming after him was to baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. The kingdom of heaven was coming in the person of Jesus Christ. The one whose coming was foretold for hundreds of years by the prophets of old was coming on the scene. John told those who came to be baptized particularly the religious leaders, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, you can't rely on the bloodline of Abraham. Prepare to be amazed and awestruck by the one that God is about to reveal. He called them into the waters of baptism, of repentance. Their Jewish bloodline wouldn't save them, only the grace and mercy of the God who sent his son could do that. He called the people to demonstrate their repentance in the act of baptism. Now, this baptism of John was different than the baptism of the believer that we practice today and, di- and have been practicing since Jesus' resurrection, since the birth of the church. This is a different baptism. This baptism, John's baptism, preceded the revealing of the Messiah and was preparation for the heart to receive him. The Apostle Paul in the book of Acts in chapter 19 speaks of the difference when he's in Ephesus and he's talking to the Ephesians and and he asks them, what baptism did you receive? And they said, well, we received John's baptism. And Paul says, well, that was a different baptism. Now you need to be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. The believer's baptism is a baptism that identifies us with the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. That's what Paul teaches us. So this was a different baptism, but nonetheless a baptism of repentance, a baptism of preparation. So one day John is baptizing somewhere along the banks of the River Jordan, and out from among the crowd, someone walks into the water. It's Jesus. He comes to be baptized by John, not because he needed to be baptized for repentance of sin, because he lived a perfect, sinless life. Gertie pointed that out last week in his message, I believe. I wasn't here, but listened to it in the podcast. He made it a point of telling us that Jesus lived a perfect, sinless life, That was part of the plan of salvation. If he hadn't done it, he couldn't save us. So Jesus doesn't come to be baptized by John because of his need to repent of his sins. He comes to identify with the people whom he came to save. And John is hesitant. I need to be baptized by you, but Jesus says, let it be so, so that all righteousness is fulfilled. 
Now next week, I'm going to look at the baptism of Jesus itself, the last part of that passage we read this morning in more detail. But today I want to look more at John the Baptist, an awesome figure in Scripture. Because there are things about John and his role in the inauguration of Jesus' ministry that speak to us today. Things we can learn from him. First of all, John had a clearly distinctive lifestyle. He had a clearly distinctive lifestyle. Look at his mode of dress and diet. Now, if you read in the Gospel of Luke, in the first chapter, you, speak, you read about his father, Zechariah. Zechariah was of the priestly line. Go back and read that first chapter sometime, if you haven't read it before. Preceding John's birth, Zechariah is ministering in the temple. So, rightfully, John could have followed in that priestly line. He could have dressed in priestly robes, but he didn't. It was the camel hair suit instead. He could have had the splendid priestly waistband, but that's not what he wore. It was the leather belt. He could have, could have eaten the meat of the sacrifices that the priests were privileged to eat as part of the temple sacrifice. But he chose a diet of locusts and wild honey. He adopted the attire more closely associated with the Old Testament prophet than the Old Testament priest. And rightfully so, because John was, in fact, you could say, the last of the Old Testament prophets. He was the bridge between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, introducing Jesus and his ministry. So what does that say to us? Should we dress and eat like that? No. If God tells you to do that, go for it. But if you bring locusts to the next fellowship meal, you're probably not going to get many takers. Just saying. What John's life teaches us about is distinctiveness and obedience. As believers, we ought to be different than people in the world. Not so much in appearance or diet, but in how we live. In how we live. Now, two weeks ago, Ryan preached an awesome message about our need to share Christ with others. It challenged me. His emphasis was on doing just that, and he shared a quote that's often attributed to St. Francis of Assisi, but actually found out this week there's no record of him having ever said it. But, it, but the quote is, preach the gospel everywhere you go, and if necessary, use words. And Ryan shared with us how nobody gets saved unless we speak. True. Absolutely true. And I don't think, I don't know if Ryan used the scripture reference, if maybe he did, if he didn't, this is a perfect reference to go along with what he was saying. 
Romans 10:14. How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? How can they believe in the one whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? It was a challenging message. Last weekend, my wife Don and I were down visiting our daughter Lauren, her husband, and our beautiful little granddaughter in the Atlanta area. And so last Sunday morning, we were at Passion City Church in Atlanta, where Louis Giglio is the pastor. Many of you know who he is, founder of the Passion Movement, the founder and senior pastor of that church. And interestingly enough, his message mirrored Ryan's message almost to the T. He actually even quoted that same quote. So Ryan, I don't know if Louis listening to your podcast, and I'm not sure how... I didn't want to include, accuse him of plagiarism, but it was a challenging message as well. The Lord, may the Lord keep that ever before us. I know I need help in that area. I need to be challenged to share my faith more freely and more frequently. We all need it. I believe that. But the fact is that that quote is important in the aspect that we need, as John did, to live a distinctive lifestyle. The prior message that Louis Giglio preached, and I've listened to this whole three-part series on his podcast, talked about building the platform on which you can preach that message that Jesus saves. When we live a distinctive lifestyle before other people, sharing the gospel to those around us is going to have a greater impact because we're building a platform by developing relationships with others and by the way we conduct our lives. If people know that you're a believer, you can bet that they're watching you. You can bet that the people at work, the people that you go to school with, the people in your family, the people in your neighborhood, wherever it is, they're watching you. John lived in relative obscurity, it seems, for the 30 years, as Jesus did prior to his coming on the scene. But I doubt seriously, it made a little bit of an argument from silence because the scripture doesn't say for sure, I don't think he lived a totally solitary life. He had human contact. He was in contact with members of his family. He was in contact probably with others, even though he lived in the wilderness. And I believe that he likely established a reputation as one who believed, trusted, and obeyed the Lord and in his calling. And in doing so, he built a platform for the proclamation that made and enabled him to do it with convincing authority. So what does it say to those around us if we profess a faith in a Savior that we say that they need if we're not living the life? If you're an accountant and you compromise your integrity for the sake of balancing the books, It's not a good witness. If you're hanging with the boys in the office and you want to share with them about a holy God, but you go to places with them that you shouldn't be, what does it say? If you're always blowing up at others in anger, whether they're members of your family or people that you're friends with, 
if you're uh, demeaning other people, what does it say to the unbeliever? Some people, when you start talking about this, you'd say, well, Jim, I think you're being a little legalistic. Well, no, I'm being biblical. I'm being biblical. I know we've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. I'll raise my hand first and foremost. I know there are areas in my life that still need work, as there are in all of our lives. But if there's nothing different about how we look and how we conduct our lives... We need to examine ourselves. A couple of scriptures, 2 Corinthians 13, 5. The Apostle Paul said, Examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not realize that Christ Jesus is in you? Unless, of course, you fail the test. James chapter 1, verse 23 and 24. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do it, do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. No, it's not about what we eat and drink or how we dress, what we wear. When the Apostle Paul speaks about food and drink in his epistles, a couple of rather lengthy sessions, it's usually to criticize or challenge those who are th- who are criticizing others because of what they eat or what they drink, or because they're saying someone has to observe this day or that day. That's legalism. But, on the other hand, he has a lot to say about the works of the flesh that taint our testimony and our witness. If you look at Galatians chapter 5, it's the chapter where we find the fruit of the Spirit, but it also has the works of the flesh listed in there. Paul says, Walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh, for the flesh lusts against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are, and then he gives a list, adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envies, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like. In other words, folks, this, isn't an exa- this is not an exhaustive list. He has much to say in directives to obey the Scriptures. Distinctiveness and obedience were hallmarks in John the Baptist's life. Let's build a platform, as John did, so that we can share with convincing authority to those around us. A clearly distinctive lifestyle. A couple of other things quickly. John had a clearly defined calling. A clearly defined calling. I mentioned that John's father, Zechariah, was a priest of the priestly line. And that could have been John's work as well. But God had something different in mind for him. And his father knew it at birth. The last portion of Zechariah's prophecy following John's birth concerning his son says this, And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his way, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God. 
whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. A clearly defined calling. Listen to John's own words from the Apostle John's Gospel. He says, For this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he, speaking about Jesus, might be revealed. That's why I came. God called me to do that. John's calling was tied directly to preparing the way for the Lord and to revealing Jesus as Messiah to the Israel. And on a smaller scale, our ministry as believers is not much different. We're to make, know Jesus and to make him known. Living the distinctive lifestyle that builds the platform for sharing with others about Jesus will hopefully reveal him to those around us as a Savior and Messiah that they need. But how that occurs will be different for each of us. We all bear that responsibility of being witnesses to those who we rub elbows with every day. What's happening downstairs with our children and what happens with, with Ryan and youth group every week, that is a vital, vitally important part of the plan. Vitally important part of that task of sharing Jesus. One of the challenges from the elders in this season is to find your place in serving the body at Emmanuel. Some of you may find that you best serve the body here by serving out in the community. For others, it may be within these walls. Seek the Lord to know how he wants you to serve if you don't already know that. God wants to clearly define it for you. John had a distinctive lifestyle. He had a clearly defined calling. And lastly and briefly, he possessed a clearly demonstrated humility. A clearly demonstrated humility. In John's Gospel, the Apostle John's Gospel, the third chapter, a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification, and they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, who was with, who, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he's baptizing and everybody's going to him. John answered, a person cannot receive one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourself bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. And then in the 30th verse, he said, he must increase and I must decrease. He's the reason I came, to reveal him, the Messiah of Israel. I'm nothing. He's everything. John knew what he was called to do, and he did it. Nothing more, nothing less. He didn't get caught up in what was an attempt by some to bring division between his disciples and Jesus' disciples. John recognized the limitation 
of the ministry that God had given him. A man can only receive what's given him from heaven. About 20 plus years ago now, or 20 years ago, almost a, uh, 22 years ago, sorry. <laughs> I stepped down from the position as a pastor of a small church in Maryland after being there for five years. Sometimes it was a struggle. It was kind of a different culture where we were. But God kept saying, be faithful, be faithful, until the time came when he released me from that. And that scripture from John chapter 3, verse 27, was what God spoke to me. He said, a man can only receive what's given him from heaven. He gave me a time there, and the time came to an end, and he said, it's time to step down. There was a limitation on that. John knew the ministry that God called him to. He had a, and demonstrated a clear humility in carrying out that ministry. He didn't try to do anything more than what God called him to, to do. And as believers, that should be our same attitude, to do what God's called us to do. Some of us will lead worship. Some of us will teach or preach. Every single part of the body and every function of the body is important. Paul makes that clear. Ryan spoke about that a few weeks ago. Paul makes it clear in his letter to the Corinthians. And sometimes... I think we can adopt the attitude, well, yeah, I know he says that, but it's true. If God said it, it's true. You know, not all of us are intercessors. I don't count myself as an intercessory prayer warrior. I pray, yeah, I do spiritual warfare sometimes, but there are some of you here, I mean, that's what God's called you to do. It's obvious. But those who are often engaged in warfare, they need a little help. Some people are called to be, at least in part, the supply line, so to speak, you know? They need encouragement. They need the supplies. So you pray for them. You share your teaching gift to try to encourage them and build them up. Every gifting, every part of the body is important. Walk in humility and serve, just as John did. He had a distinctive lifestyle, a defined calling, and a demonstrated humility. Hope we can all have the same qualities as we walk with the Lord and grow in Him.